Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Justin Brandon. Justin is a director at Scape Interiors Limited, an award-winning family-run furniture store in Dorset. Justin, welcome. Great to have you on the programme today. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. Absolute pleasure to have you. Now, in these times of crisis, Justin, with the outbreak of COVID-19, no less, effective leadership is more relevant than ever before. Um, In your view, Justin, what does it mean to actually be an effective leader? Well, I think it means that you have to be have a a strength of character and you have to be able to, um, you know, have people warm to you and uh, leave uh, belief in you as well that what you're saying is the most logical way forward. Obviously, everything's up for debate, but with leadership, you need to have a strong sense of character and you need to be able to be very um, um, trustworthy um, in other people's eyes. Yes, absolutely. And um, you talked about there some of the um, important qualities that are required of leadership figures in uh, this day and age. Do you think those qualities are things that some people are just born with, or are they something that you can develop and learn throughout your life and your career? Oh, I definitely feel that you can develop, and uh, you're always learning, aren't we? You're always striving for um, to become better people, um, whether it's in business and um, socially. Um, as well, you know, we're always aspiring to do more. Um, you know, there's people that have inspired me, um, you know, people that have gone through horrific injuries, whether it be in the armed forces, you know, when they're running marathons in wheelchairs or, or on uh, prosthetic limbs, you know, whether it's uh, other people that have, you know, you know, climbed Everest and uh, in their 80s, you know, or in, in, in later years of life, so people are always um, aspiring to do more and better themselves, and um, I believe that that is a that is a human quality that sets us apart from um, you know other 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 animals, if you like, that inhabit this planet Earth that we all live on. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's really interesting, some of the examples that you uh, sort of came up with there, uh, Justin. You mentioned, of course, uh, veterans who have been war-wounded before. You mentioned also people who've um, had fantastic achievements, such as climbing Everest. And with that in mind, and considering that good examples of leadership can go under the radar, as it were, do you think that leadership, good leadership especially, is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? I actually don't feel it is. I actually feel that um, good leadership should be fundamentally made an example of. So, A, it can inspire others to become leaders, and B, those people that it's um, highlighting the spotlight can be, uh, you know, can can be made to feel proud of their own accomplishments as well. Uh, I don't believe that they are. Um, given as much praise as they're due, so to speak. I think that, you know, with the media these days, particularly most mainstream media, they seem to, uh, you know, they seem to uh, pride themselves on, whether it's because there's more newspapers or more streams, I don't know, but they seem to pride themselves on um, publishing more negative 
aspects of, um, of one's life and the more negative aspects um, of the current situation, you know, and um, I know that's very important news accurately, but they could report even bad news with a positive light um, at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to leadership figures who are especially prominent and in the public eye constantly, be it world leaders, celebrities, they are very much in the firing line far more than others for such criticism, like you mentioned, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, and it's a shame because uh, some of them are doing a very, very good job and um, they're not being acknowledged for it. And it must be very disheartening for those individuals when they are um, subject to such severe criticism um, through the media, uh, particularly with all the other aspects of media in the current day and age we live in with social media, um, Twitter, so on and so forth. I mean, anybody can be sitting on there online and make any comment about somebody. And it's, um, you know, and, it, and, it, and it's out in the public domain. And then, uh, you know, that person who's made that comment, sometimes I've got no grounds to make that comment, indeed no evidence. Mm. They'll still make it anyway, and it's still, you know, acknowledged or retweeted, so on and so forth. So lots of people get exposure to that um, negative statement that they may have made, you know? Yeah, I understand completely. Um, you did mention earlier, Justin, as well, that there are um, figures who've been good examples of effective leadership that have inspired you before. Um, are there any examples that really stick out as to people that have inspired you and maybe had an impact on your own leadership style? Yes, I have really. I mean, when I was, um, I had a business and um, and I sold it. Um, due to a, a breakdown in a, in a previous relationship, a long-term relationship, um, you know there was a, there were options in front of me, and I was uh, suffering from a broken heart, if you like. So I decided to um, I decided to sell everything I owned, uh, including the uh, business house, all my belongings, and just keep the bare necessities. And uh, obviously, um, you know. Um, with my partner in an amicable, fair way, and then I um, I embarked on um, on a voyage uh, on a small boat. Um, I think it was about forty six foot, and I sailed around British Isles. Um, I'd never previously done any sailing, so it's completely new to me. And um, while I was on this um, boat, we we embarked from uh, St Catherine's Dock, and we circumnavigated the whole of the British Isles, um, calling it Northern Ireland and. Uh, right up to the uh, Orkneys and Shetland Isles and then back down the east coast of the UK and uh, we stopped at 60 and 67 volts uh, along the way and it was a remarkable journey and on that journey there was a man there and he had one leg and he was suffering from, from uh, ill health it was in his 70s, late 70s and he went on that journey with us and uh, he really inspired me because you know nothing seemed to get him down you know even when we were all um, suffering from, you know, seasickness because we were in a stall sailing up the Irish Sea in the Force 12 gal. He was uh, he was there strapped in to the helm, you know, saying, it's okay, lads, we'll get to it, you know. And he ended up being the strongest out of all of us. And some of those guys on there, one of them was former SBS service and another guy was, uh, was an ex-military guy from the army and they were pretty tough nuts, you know, and this, this guy who we assumed to be the weakest link would actually turned out to be the strongest link in the end, you know. And he really inspired me. So I thought, well, if he can do it, anybody can, you know. 
So it was quite quite interesting um, experience to be in those sort of close confines with complete strangers that you didn't know. Um, you know, um, carrying out this voyage where everyone has to muck in, everyone has duties, and everyone has to um, look after the guy next to them. You know, so it, it was really inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. And it links back to um, a couple of things that we've uh, discussed already, that idea that examples of good leaders don't necessarily have to be in the public eye. It can very much go under the radar. They can be everyday people like myself, like yourself, people who, for example, have gone through um, injuries, difficulties. And that's a shining example there. Um, But also that journey that you went on as well, Justin, I think that links back as well to the other point that we discussed about good leadership being something that you can learn and develop throughout life. And you can have inspirations at different points in your life as well which helped change you as a person and that journey going on to become a leader as well that's that's important isn't it that journey that development it's just as important as having almost ready-made qualities yes it's very very important that um that people uh have experiences in life uh, different life experiences because it uh, it builds character and it builds depth depth of character as well and also um instills in one a sense of um, companionship and camaraderie between their fellow uh, human beings um, in a much broader um, aspect than what it would otherwise do if you just um, you know did the same thing, worked in the same company nine to five throughout your whole career. You know, so I mean, and it's challenging times now. You know, people people haven't got a job for life like they used to have, and they haven't got. These luxuries that you know, the baby boomer generation may have had, you know, when there was um, there was employment secure and it was under contract, and and there were certain um, laws that, that protected you. You know, there's so many people now that you know, old friends of mine, high school friends, and a lot of them are um, you know working uh, freelancers, if you like, and they're sort of being forgotten during this crisis. Where they aren't, you know, they don't know how they're going to put bread on the table, and you know they're running their own show. They still pay taxes, and they still pay their pay their dues. You know, they still give under Caesar that which is Caesar's, but they don't get any help from Caesar. You know, they sort of they feel left out um, because nothing has been announced that's going to protect those freelance workers. You know, but hopefully um, the government will, will will come up with something for those guys, and and they will be. They will be protected from um, going insolvent, you know. So hopefully, going forward, that something will happen for them. Um, but yeah, going, I mean, as we go back to, it, I mean, you know, there's lots of different experiences that people go through just in their daily lives with the ups and downs of life. But you have to remain a positive mindset, and you have to um, overcome each obstacle as it presents itself. And uh, try not to think too far ahead, but think enough. Um, think think far ahead enough, but not too far ahead where it can confuse you. You know, because you can set goals to get over a certain challenge or difficulty. So you can set you can divide that challenge into segments. And once you um, overcome one particular segment, it gives you strength and it gives you um, confidence to. Um, tackle the next segment of that challenge rather than look at the whole thing as a whole where you can become you know overwhelmed with, with, the, with the particularly difficulty that you're going through and um, divide it up into uh, 
smaller segment um, and then overcome each segment individually. Uh, and I found that that's, that's, that's how I've managed to overcome some, uh, some difficulties in, in my career and in my life uh, by doing that. Yeah, it's a really interesting approach, as you say, taking everything as it comes and almost breaking every um, sort of big um, goal and big pursuit down like that. Um, also, you did mention as well um, that importance of camaraderie, of morale. And is it? do you think it's the role of a leader as well, especially a leader of a team, to create an atmosphere of positivity which can allow um, everybody around them to flourish as well? Yes, definitely so. I mean, the more... Um the more you praise somebody for the work they've done, the harder their work and the better their work next time as well because everybody likes to be have a pat on the back and um, everybody likes to be told that they're doing a good job. Um, and at the same time, if they're not doing a good job, there's ways that you can, you know, there's ways that you can approach that rather than, uh, you know, be hating people um, in public and humiliating them, which is going to alienate them from you as a leader. You want to, you want to have that those conversations in, in a private setting, and uh, you want to be able to um, try to see things um, from your point of view. Um, and also, you need to be able to um, see things from their point of view. Put yourself in their shoes, and then ask them to. You know, I, I used to, when I used to have to reprimand um, one of my staff members if they did something particularly wrong uh, that cost um, the company um, money or revenues, um, I used to I used to basically put myself in their shoes and then put them in my shoes and say, you know, we're going to go through a process now where we swap shoes. And like sometimes literally physically say, well, I'll take my shoes off. You take your shoes off. Now, I'm going to put your shoes on. What size are you? Oh, they're a bit too small, but I'll just put my top my in, sitting down, uh, you know, in the office and just talk like that, you know. So then they're literally physically in your shoes and you're physically in there. So it's a good metaphor to get that conversation going. And then because they've actually committed the act of physically putting your shoes on temporarily, then they, they sort of start to see things that way as well. Because it's a, it's a physical embodiment of a mental situation, you know, so it helps as well. I've done that before. And that's, um, it's important to do that um, with colleagues or friends. It's important to, um, you know, praise more than berate if you can. Um, you know, even if somebody particularly um, seems to be going down the wrong path, you know, you can steer them um, back onto the right path where you want them to be heading, but you can do it in a way that is not going to um, make them... Um, too self-aware of themselves and too introverted because the moment um, a colleague becomes introverted and they're not communicating with you any longer, uh, that's when things can lead from bad to worse, you know, so it's important to keep all channels of communication open and be a very approachable person um, and to do that really you need to set anger aside, you know, you need to completely nullify anger and um, throw it out the window, um, you know. And if you have to go in your garage before you meet this person in the morning and punch a punch band to get the anger out, or go in the, go and have a run around the park, or whatever you have to do to do that, you need to imperative you do that before you before you um, you know have discussions with this colleague, um, you know, or work colleague or employee, and then you can uh, talk in a in a, in a calm. Um, 
encouraging way, positive way. You know, that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And it really epitomizes the importance of people management as well. Um, that entire story and that idea of really put, literally putting yourself in them and other person's shoes as well is really interesting there. Um, before we do wrap things up, Justin, uh, do you give me um, an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself for Scape as a business and what you really hope to achieve in that time as well? Well, it's certainly unprecedented times. Uh, as far as we haven't had a, a lockdown like this before, um, probably since the days of uh, um, Oliver Cromwell and the Civil War, where a lot of uh, establishments closed their doors and locked themselves in their house, you know. But um, going forward, I think that uh, thing to do would be to. Um, um, consolidate your expenditure, and um, obviously there is there is a light in the tunnel because you know you can you can create commerce remotely now. You can create commerce without even having to meet somebody face to face. You can create commerce uh, through the internet and through all digital mediums where you don't have to even be you know you can be ten thousand miles away from someone, let alone two meters away. You know, so there is. There is things that you can do, and what we're doing now is we are going to be offering uh, free deliveries um, for all items, and we're going to be, you know, uploading more items digitally um, via our our e-commerce um, site. Um, it's been difficult in the past because we we sometimes we sell things that are very unique and they're not mass produced, so. There isn't huge stock numbers, you know, to call upon. But in times like this, um, you know, we can do that and uh, we can just add different items from time to time and increase increase the portfolio of what we do. Um, and also, we're going to be reaching out to people, um, you know, before we, before this lockdown, what we, one of the things we were doing was to... Um, we was giving away free hand, hand sanitizers to all customers over 60 uh, simply because there was a shortage and they were in a vulnerable group and that's what we were doing that. Um, you know, it's any small purchase. I mean, the lowest price items we sell are like one ninety nine. So, you know, it's just a way of um, offering the elderly, vulnerable people something back uh, for the custom they've given us over the last decade or so and rewarding their loyalty as well and also um, helping them to obviously manage their own hygiene and you know sometimes it can be a psychological thing just an elderly person they've got a bottle of hand sanitizer in their bag or in their pocket and if they touch it have to touch a door handle or they can clean their hands with it if there's no soap and water it's a simple thing but it's a real it's a real nice gesture uh, people can do things like that during this time and I think we need to watch out and look out for um Fellow colleagues in the in the in the workplace, make sure that they're okay. Make sure that they've got everything they need. Um, you know, keep lines of communication open. Although everybody's at home um, in isolation, um, with today's, as I was saying earlier, with today's mediums, there's no need to be in isolation. You can still communicate and you can still talk, even face to face via FaceTime or um, WhatsApp and stuff like that. And it's relatively cost-free. So it's um, it's not as bad as what it could be. Um, 
you know, and it has been probably in the past, like during the war, and times like that, during the Second World War, things like that, it's probably just as bad, if not worse. Um, I do think people need to, obviously, um, from a business point of view, they need to continue, and they need to they need to get all the help they can, uh, both from government and their own um, landlords, landladies, um, because everybody's in this together. Landlords, landladies aren't exempt. We're all in it, and we've all got to come through it as a nation, um, and we're all going to pull together, and you know, keep keep um, you know keep doing what you do but just do it at home you know if you want to go say for instance well, you, you want to buy a new lamp or you know you're looking for a lamp for a room you know go and look for a lamp and look for it on your computer and buy it you know because you can still get it it can still be delivered to you um, but as a fundamental bricks and mortar retailer it, it, it was difficult times anyway before this because of um, the nature of consumer shopping habits has changed significantly and you have to be adaptable and you have to adapt to that. But you're still going to always get the element of people that like to um, physically pick something up, hold it, even smell it, you know, turn it around and feel the weight of it and so on and so forth. So that aspect um, would always be there. Uh, you know, you need to create, we, we, we need to create shopping experiences for people where it's not just about, oh, you know, you come into a store, yeah, can I help you please? People don't go over you, but you need to you need to have time to come in there, you need to make people feel relaxed in your environment, whatever business you're in. And uh, you know, you need to make your customers relax, you need to make them warm to you and you build relationships like that with um, you know, with your customers. Um, and those relationships can be nurtured and can be made stronger and um, over over a period of time. And obviously, the longer you're you're doing business or trading with that person, the stronger those bonds become. You know, so that's really important for businesses to uh, look at that aspect of it as well. You know, but I think that's you know it's going to pass. It won't last forever, and uh, it's just you've got to you know maybe give a little bit more than you're used to giving. Um, you know, you have to have a, a generosity in your heart, if you like, to give more than you can than you receive. You know, and if you do that, if everybody does that, then I think that uh, we will come out of this as a nation a lot, lot stronger than we were before. Yeah, for sure. And let's hope that that uh, does happen uh, once all of this blows over. Um, Dustin, it's been really insightful and an absolute pleasure having you um, on the programme uh, today. And I think it would be fantastic to maybe even have you back on in a few months' time to see how things have panned out in that respect. So thanks so much again for your time today. Yeah, I'll be delighted. Yes, it's been great to talk to you too. And um, just hope that everybody stays safe and everybody comes through this together and use this time um, while you're in quiet times, you know, in your own house, um, in your own car, so to speak, to reflect on your own lives and, uh, you know, seek uh, seek how to, you can improve them and how you can um, in, improve them both internally and externally. And it's a, it's a good time to do that now because everything's slowed down and the frantic pace is, you know, look at this, people should look at this as like a break, really, you know. It's a little sabbatical where we can all reflect on our own situations and how we can improve ourselves and how we can improve our nation as a whole so that other nations around the world can look at uh, 
Great, great Britain as a great country, as a model country, a tolerant country, um, and they can also improve their own nations as well. Absolutely, this could be an example. See, so. mm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, absolutely. Right. We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand 
what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, f- I think it was in, final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely <laughs> terrible like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that that just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. 
Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel 
comforted. There'll be that degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyoke Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the 
Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, 
what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> like anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.